Welcome to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, and this week's session is called Responding to Foolish Statements. In other words, statements or challenges that have no credibility to even make, or challenges that just simply lack wisdom. And as we go through these 10 foolish statements, we're going to see something very similar in most all of them. So let's take a look at three things that we're going to see. Number one, deals with a lack of Bible study or understanding of what God's Word really means. Second, we're going to see inconsistent statements. And third, we're going to see what I call very arrogant statements. Well, let's start by reading a piece of Scripture. Proverbs 26, verse 5, and it states this, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, Proverbs 26, verse 5 tells us we should answer the silly or immature thinking person. We should respond to their folly, which means silliness. We should respond to their line of reasoning. The answer we give should expose their weakness in their thinking. The thinking, his thinking needs to be challenged for the own person's sake, lest they become wise in their own eyes. That's why we need to respond to them, because in their own thinking, they have become wise, and we need to challenge this. Now, in this session, we're going to cover 10 foolish statements. Now, because of time, we're going to break this up into two parts. In part one, we will cover the first five statements. And here are the 10 statements we'll cover in both parts. Number one, the Bible does not say how God created. Two, there are no absolutes. Three, evolution is a fact. Four, no one has the whole truth. Five, that's true for you, but not for me. Six, why are Christians against a woman's right to choose, meaning abortion? Seven, why are Christians so intolerant of other people's views? Eight, we shouldn't teach creation because it's too divisive. Anyway, God could have used evolution. Nine, life must be on other planets. It's arrogant to believe we are only life in this universe. And ten, the Bible is not real history. It's just a book of fairy tales and fiction. So in part one, we will cover the first five topics. So let's get started with statement number one. The Bible does not say how God created. Now why is this a foolish or unwise statement? Because it is made out of ignorance or contempt for God's Word. When someone makes this statement, we can respond this way. If the Bible does not say how God created, then how did the universe or matter get here? Well, there are only two choices here. Number one, the universe created itself. Now, this goes against all known science, against physics, chemistry, and all known science and laws of science. You see, for order, in order for something to create itself, it has to have the power to act before it even exists. It cannot have any power. It cannot make any decisions if it does not exist. Therefore, it is illogical and unscientific to make a statement something can create itself. That leaves us option two, in that God 
created everything out of nothing. This does not violate any known laws of science. Why? But God is not a material entity. He is spiritual. Therefore, it does not violate any of our laws. Now, since option two is the only logical and scientific answer, which is also the biblical answer, we need to ask ourselves this question now. Does the Bible tell us how God created? And the answer to that is yes. Let's take a look at just three different verses here. Genesis chapter 1, we see the words God said eight times. Eight times it tells us how God created. He spoke it into existence. Then we go to Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, where it reads this way. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Notice this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That is pretty plain and simple to understand. God spoke it into existence. Now let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 where it states, By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. You see, the Bible plainly teaches in these three verses how God created. He spoke into existence by His word, His great power. The problem some people in the church have, as well as some professors in religion schools or religion classes, is they simply cannot believe this. Now, why don't they believe this? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, it's not a scientific answer, therefore they can't handle it. Two, they might say, well, God can't do this. If we can't do it, then neither can God. Or three, the verses are just for spiritual teaching and not meant to be taken literally. Well, for each of these reasons, the person is ignoring the plain reading of Scripture and are really guilty of creating God in their image. Now, let's look at some more verses of Scripture that cover these topics. How about Revelation chapter 4, verse 11? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God just simply willed them into existence by His great power. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Who being the brightness of His glory in the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. Now let's go to Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 12. He has made the earth by His power. He has established the world by His wisdom and has stretched out the heavens at His discretion. Now let's go to Job chapter 37, verse 5. God thunders marvelously with His voice. He does things which we cannot comprehend. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, God is smarter than us and He is more powerful than us. We do not need to create Him in our image. So conclusion on this session. The Bible does teach how God created we need to be better students of God's Word. We need to read and study the Bible. We need to stop being ashamed of God's Word and make it our authority rather than man's wisdom. 
Now let's go to statement number two. There are no absolutes. Now, why is this statement a foolish or unwise statement? See, this statement is based on a belief in something called relativism. This is the idea there is no absolute right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. The statement, there are no absolute, is what we also call a universal negative. And these can sometimes be very hard to prove. For example, if I was to make the statement, there is no gold in Texas, how could I prove that statement true? Well, we would have to dig up and examine every cubic inch of Texas. If there was one cubic inch we have not examined, then we cannot legitimately make that statement. Everything is relative or there are no absolutes or there is no gold in Texas. Similarly, what would we have to know in order to make that statement? There are no absolutes. Well, you would have to know everything. Therefore, the best the relativist can really say is, I don't believe there are any absolutes. That is the best and most honest way they can make that statement. I don't believe there are any absolutes. And then we could respond this way. Since you are not certain that everything is relative, then it is possible there are absolutes. Let me show you why I believe there are absolutes. Also, sometimes when we're challenged or we have statements like this, it is best to start off by defining our terms. So don't get in an idle argument. And there are two terms we really need to define here. We need to find the word absolute and we need to define the word truth. Now, what is the definition of absolute? For that, we will go to the New Oxford American Dictionary and it states this. An absolute is something that is universally true. That is, the truth is independent of all other factors or context. In other words, in logic, a valid statement is said to have universality or be absolute if it can be conceived as being true in all possible contexts or circumstances without any known contradictions. In other words, what is absolutely true is always correct, everywhere, all the time, under any condition. Now, there are two key components of these definitions. Number one, it must be observable and be the same everywhere. In other words, no known contradictions in order to be absolute. Now, let's look at the definition of truth. Now, to the relativist who don't believe in absolute right or wrong, truth is an observer-dependent, human-related concept that is entirely subjective. Now, what is a definition of truth? Truth is that which conforms to reality, fact, or actuality. In other words, it agrees with reality or facts. In other words, to be true, it has to be a factually and logically correct statement, and it has to agree with reality. Now, some examples of this would be the laws of science. By definition, something can become a law of science if it is well examined, observed by many, and there are no known contradictions, and it reacts the same way all the time. 
An example of this would be the second law of thermal thermodynamics. This deals with heat energy. Energy goes from a state of usable energy to a state of less usable energy if you're doing work in an isolated system. That is what we observe throughout this entire universe and there are no known exceptions to that. Therefore, we call it a law of science. Another one would be the law of biogenesis, which states that life only comes from prior life. That is a law of science because that is all we've ever observed. No one has ever seen any contradictions to this. You know what that law of science basically tells us? Evolution cannot be true. In order for evolution is true, to be true, it has to violate this law of science. But no one has ever observed anything going against this law. We can also look at truth by determining what it is not. Truth is not error. Truth is not self-contradicting. And truth is not deception. Now, is there something that is always true all the time? Yes, there is. We've looked at some. For example, something cannot create itself. And again, for something to create itself, it means it has to have the power to act before it even exists. And it can't have any power if it does not exist. Also, there are other things that we've looked at. The laws of science, and we looked at just two of them. How about in math? 1 plus 3 always equals 4. doesn't matter what number system you're in, it always equals 4. And how about God's Word is always true? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, Psalm 31, verse 5, Isaiah 66, 65, verse 16, all three of those refer verses refer to God as the God of truth. So the Bible clearly does tell us there is truth. In John 14, 6, we read, and Jesus said of himself there, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, the Bible does teach there is absolute truth. Now, in that verse, Jesus was making a very profound statement about his own deity. Jesus is making clear that all truth must ultimately be defined in terms of God and his eternal glory. So, conclusion on this statement. The dogmatic claim, there are no absolute, is not only contradictory and unprovable, it is also a very arrogant statement. Why? It is contradictory because it itself is making an absolute statement, so it contradicts itself. It is unprovable because you would need to know everything in order to make that statement, and it is arrogant because you're assuming you know everything. So now, let's go to statement number three. I also call this a foolish statement. Evolution is a fact. Now, let's look at some quotes here. Richard Dawkins, Ph.D., makes this statement. Evolution is a fact beyond reasonable doubt, beyond serious doubt, beyond sane, informed, intelligent doubt. Beyond doubt, evolution is a fact. Let's take a look at a biology textbook. It states, Today, nearly all biologists acknowledge that evolution is a fact. Now, let's go to the National Academy of Sciences, and let's get the definition of a fact 
in science. What do they have to say? The National Academy of Sciences. Is evolution a theory or a fact? It is both. So they're clearly stating evolution is a fact. Now, what is wrong with the statement evolution is a fact? Well, before answering the challenge, we really have to agree on some terms here. We have to decide what is the definition of evolution. Well, there's two popular views that have gone out there, and these, these are still taught in our schools. There's something called microevolution, and there's something called macroevolution. What is the difference? Well, microevolution, what we have are small changes within kind, but the kind stays the same kind. In macroevolution, or commonly referred to as Darwinian evolution, we have one kind changing into another. In other words, it's amoeba to man. Now, we're going to just use the term macroevolution here. Because micro, the creature stays the same kind. So we're not concerned about that because we know that's true. We do know there's variety within kind. But we're going to talk about the macroevolution. Now, let's get back to our definition of a fact in science. We saw the National Academy of Sciences, what they had to say, that evolution is a fact. Let's take a look what a fact is. According to the National Center for Science Education, an observation that has been repeatedly confirmed and for all practical purposes is accepted as true. Let's look at the National Academy of Sciences again. What do they have to say about a scientific fact? In science, a fact typically refers to an observation, measurement, or other form of evidence that can be expected to occur the same way under similar conditions. Now, I want to point out two things here in their definitions. One, to be a fact, it has to be observed. Secondly, it has to be repeatable. And a third part they actually add in, it must act the same way all the time. Now, let's compare those definitions to what we actually know about evolution. Number one, no one ever observed the Big Bang, and it's never been repeated. So that fails there. Number two, no one has ever observed a star or a galaxy form. It fails there. Number three, no one, ever, no one ever observed the origin of life, so it fails there. Four, no one has ever observed one creature evolve into a new kind of creature. It fails there. And five, no one has ever observed millions of years. So, can evolution be a fact? Absolutely not. It is not a fact. James Tour has a PhD in chemistry, makes this statement. I have trouble with the Darwinian account because it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit the process in which molecular structure can change to build one entity and transform it into another. Carl Gallops, in his book, The Magic Man in the Sky, states this. Abiogenesis. Well, before going any further, let me explain something about that word. We have a law of science called biogenesis, which teaches that life only comes from prior life. Now, abiogenesis is the belief that non-living chemicals can create life. So Carl Gallops goes on to state this. Abiogenesis, unbelievably, is still the modern scientific explanation of how life arose from previously non-living matter. In reality, it is merely the unscientific, ancient, and superstitious idea of spontaneous generation. Even so, evolutionists and atheists, with immense pride, declare it to be a modern truth. 
Now, in conclusion on this statement, evolution is not a scientific fact. To make that claim is unjustified and unscientific. It is a bluff or deception, which is commonly used in our schools, and it is also a very arrogant statement because it is a dishonest statement and attempts to belittle other views. Now let's go to our statement number four. No one has the whole truth. This is another example of a universal negative. In order to prove this statement, we would basically have to know everything, which makes this an arrogant statement. Also, it is a self-defeating statement because it contradicts itself. The statement itself makes an absolute truth claim. Now, how could we respond when somebody challenges with that statement? No one has the whole truth. This could be a response. How can you claim that no one has the whole truth and then impose your own claim of the truth on me? I'm sorry, but you are contradicting yourself. A better way to make that statement and a more honest way to make that statement would be no one has the whole truth, including me. Now let's go to number five, the last one in this part. And it states, that's true for you, but not for me. In other words, it's another one of those everything is relative statements. Now this statement fails on four accounts. It is self-contradicting. It uses the logical fallacy self-exemption. It has an internal inconsistency. And it is an appeal to authority. So why is it self-contradicting? Because this statement makes a claim that nothing in the universe is true or false. But yet this claim is making a universal truth statement. To be consistent, the relativist must say nothing is objectively true, including my own statement or position. A response to that claim might be, you're assuming the statement something can be true for one person and not for another. Do you believe this applies for everyone's belief except yours? If your statement is only true for you, then I see no reason to think it applies to me. Now, also has a self-exemption in there. When someone says everything is relative, they expect their hearers to believe that statement and then embrace their view of reality. They expect their statement to pertain to all statements except their own. Thus, they commit the error or logical fallacy of self-exemption. It also fails on internal inconsistency. The statement, something can be true for one person and not for another, fails to meet its own criteria for truth. Why? The statement itself makes a truth statement. And then finally, it is an appeal to authority. By claiming a statement holds true only for everyone else, the relative this basically sets themselves up as the lawmaker. The person is putting themselves in a position of authority over others. Well, we just concluded part one of responding to foolish statements. In part two, we'll cover the next five. Thank you and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org.
your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's Word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Thank you.